You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number nine of Ask Concussion Doc. I am your host, as always, Dr. Cameron Marshall. Uh, first thing here, uh, FIFA World Cup starts tomorrow for all you soccer or football fans in the UK or uh, Europe. Um, World Cup starts tomorrow and some exciting news for us in North America. Canada, US, Mexico just won a joint bid for the 2026 FIFA World Cup, beating out Morocco. Uh, I just looked up the cities here. So in Canada, they're looking at Edmonton, Montreal and Toronto as possibilities. In the U.S., uh, Atlanta, Baltimore, Boston, Cincinnati, Dallas, Denver, Houston, Kansas City, Los Angeles, Miami, Nashville, New York, New Jersey, Orlando, holy crap, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Bay Area, Seattle, Washington, D.C., and in Mexico, Guadalajara, Mexico City, and Monterey. So uh, those are all the potential uh, locations. So congratulations to North America. Uh, I just was at CASM. So CASM is the Canadian uh, Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine, which is the um, association of all these sports medicine physicians in Canada. And they had their annual conference in Halifax uh, the last week. And I was fortunate enough to be, um, be able to speak there on some research that Complete Concussion Management has done uh, in the past couple years. And the particular research project, just for you guys, uh, was concerning a test called the Gapsky-Goodman test. Uh, for those in our network, it's also sometimes referred to uh, as the Chicago Blackhawks test. But what it is is a physical exertion test developed by the medical staff for the Chicago Blackhawks. And it's designed to be used for athletes returning to high-risk sport. So after the athletes have gone through their entire return-to-play process and they're now asymptomatic, they've returned back to practice and they've done a couple non-contact practices at the medical clearance state before you allow them to go back to a full contact practice, uh, the Blackhawks would administer this physical exertion test. And so it's a bike protocol uh, along with some plyometric stuff to challenge uh, the physiologic systems, blood flow, heart rate, blood pressure, but also uh, vestibular and ocular motor systems. And so they've been using this for quite some time and uh, were kind enough to allow complete concussion management to start using it across all of our clinic locations. And so we've been using it for about four or five years now, and we've been collecting data uh, on people that have gone through it. So keep in mind, this test is something that you would administer after symptoms had gone away. So people are asymptomatic with return to school, asymptomatic with return to sport, and then we would finally run them through this test, the Gapsky-Goodman test, prior to allowing them to return to full activity. And what we found in our study, and this was on athletes between the ages of uh, 12 and 25 years old, that when we would run this test, so even though they're asymptomatic and they've done their full return to play, they would have been cleared in any other scenario, we find that 15% of the athletes in our study, and this is out of eight, about 800 uh, athletes, 15% of them will actually fail this test, indicating potentially ongoing impairment 
that's potentially picked up by this test. And so our conclusion is that we shouldn't just be relying on self-reported symptoms from an athlete um, to go through their own kind of return to play protocol as sufficient for concussion recovery. And this test, I think, uh, demonstrates that with 15% failure rate. Um, and interestingly, when those 85% of athletes who do pass, we then bring them in and retest all their baseline batteries if we have it. So we test their balance, their reaction time, and all that stuff. And we pulled the data and we find that even though 85% of the athletes will pass their Gapsky Goodman test, uh, about 30% of those will fail some element of their baseline retest, meaning that overall you get a total of about 40% of athletes failing at their medical clearance state. And so this just brings up the importance of having a good quality baseline test, but also the importance of utilizing physical exertion as a potential biomarker for concussion recovery, looking at blood flow in the brain and the pathophysiology of that. So that was my study. Also uh, with me presenting there was Dr. Dave Lawrence, uh, sports medicine physician at University of Toronto. He is the lead author of that study I spoke about a few weeks ago regarding earlier and earlier onset of exercise predicts a, um, a better outcome for patients. So for each day that athletes delayed return to exercise and we're talking not going back to sport which there was some confusion uh, with some questions on uh, I think Instagram and this is not concerning return to sport this is con simply considering return to exercise self-directed you know riding an exercise bike for 20 minutes type of thing um, for every day that that was delayed they found a, um, uh, a substantial decrease uh, or increase sorry in the amount of time it took them to return to, to school and also to sport. So um, it's kind of challenging the notion that rest is the best thing for concussions. We're finding now that actually exercise um, is probably not only safe, but uh, entirely beneficial for people with, with concussion. So uh, kudos to Dr. Lawrence on that work uh, and his team as well. So the first question um, is a long one but it's concerning some new type of therapies, uh, some stuff you guys may have heard back, um, uh, QEEG uh, and neurofeedback, as well as uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So um, here's a question from Dan C on our Facebook. Um, um, a topic I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about. Uh, say one has persistent cognitive deficits and head pain two years after injury. Assume these deficits remain after physiotherapy, chiro, and vision and vestibular rehab um, have worked out neck and vision-related causes, and the patient has gone through a neuropsychological exam and went through a tailored course of cognitive rehab from a neuropsych or speech therapist. So they've done a lot of stuff. It helped, but the patient still has appreciable cognitive deficits, one or more migraines per week, uh, and other typical PCS symptoms such as mental fatigue, um, and is easily overloaded. Uh, at this point, can one expect improvements from QEEG neurofeedback or hyperbaric oxygen therapy? So first off, um, neurofeedback is, um, it's, Kind of a newer thing. It's been utilized a lot in uh, more severe brain injuries, uh, and there is a little bit of research on using neurofeedback for various things. However, in the field of concussion, it's still experimental, I would quote that. 
And um, I think we have more research needed before we can really understand, you know, if it's going to be beneficial. Um, I know anecdotally that I've had some patients that have had, you know, tremendous benefits and some others that have not. Um, I think that in terms of your case, there's other things that I would do before I would go to that type of experimental therapy. On the hyperbaric oxygen side of things, there has been a lot of research on hyperbaric oxygen and the majority, so I'd say there's probably about eight studies on it, seven out of the eight show that hyperbaric oxygen therapy is no better than placebo. So what hyperbaric is, is they put, um, you get inside kind of a chamber or a tube and they increase the oxygen saturation level to 100%. And not only that, they pressurize the tube to anywhere from, you know, one and a half to three atmospheric pressures above kind of sea level, right? So that pressurization, the idea is the increase in oxygen delivery uh, is going to help with brain recovery. And the problem though <laughs> is there's been one research study that I'm aware of that's shown benefit in people with persistent concussion symptoms. And that particular study uh, was flawed in many ways. And the reason is because they did a crossover design. So they compared being in the tube and getting the full oxygen load at a large and high pressure volume. They compared that with people who did absolutely nothing. So in any type of research, you have to have a good placebo control. Otherwise, the people getting nothing are not going to have any improvement. But the people getting the treatment, no matter what it is, are likely to see improvements because they realize that they are in the experimental group. Okay? So that study showed that hyperbaric oxygen was actually superior. Now, a better study design is to put everybody into the chambers and blind the people in the chambers as to whether or not they're actually getting pure oxygen or surface level oxygen, whether or not it's pressurized or not pressurized. And so when they actually do that, they find that the group getting the oxygen at hyperbaric pressures and the groups getting just surface level general oxygen show absolutely no difference in their recoveries, no difference in symptom resolution at all. And so the conclusion of, I'd say about seven out of the eight studies have been done on this, is that it is no better than placebo or sham. So, and actually the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation just published their new updated guidelines on adult patients with persistent symptoms. And actually one of the recommendations with level A evidence was with the strongest evidence that they're endorsing in this guidelines. They say it is not recommended to use hyperbaric oxygen to treat the symptoms of post-concussion syndrome. So for those that are getting hyperbaric, some people say that, yeah, it helps, but um, I mean, that, that could be purely placebo because when they do really good quality, pure uh, placebo control trials, uh, they find that there is absolutely no difference between the two uh, groups. So no better than sham. And according to this recommendation, the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation agrees with me as well. So QEEG neurofeedback, I'd say it's still experimental. Hyperbaric oxygen, I would actually say scrap it. Don't even bother going through. And it's a super expensive process, and it also is very time-consuming. You have to go every single day, and it takes about an hour of treatment and therapy while you're there. So, And you have to do it for like three months. And even with those protocols, no different than sham. So toss that one. QEG, I'd still say there's more research that's needed. Now, in terms of the other stuff that, that's here, I just want to point out some stuff that may have been missed with your 
uh, patient. I didn't see anything about guided exercise therapy. That's a big one, right? Blood flow issues, that one we know, and there's a ton of evidence on that. So if you haven't done that, make sure you're doing that. Uh, other things, dietary interventions, okay? Inflammation plays a big role, and the stuff that we eat these, the, these days is just garbage. A lot of it is processed. Uh, a lot of it is refined and stuff that humans were never really meant to digest. And I've done some posts recently on the gut-brain axis and how uh, your gut health directly influences cognitive function and fatigue and that foggy feeling. And it sounds like this guy, mental fatigue and easily overloaded, sounds like he could have issues with, with gut health, um, which is a lot simpler than relying on all this fancy technology to try and do it. It just goes, you know, eat um, eat properly. Uh, one diet that may be beneficial, I definitely say use your healthcare provider to, uh, to guide you through this. Um, it would be something like an elimination diet to try and repair your gut um, lining. But again, I would use um, a health professional who has a lot of experience in, in regulating gut health because it also fluctuates your hormone levels and everything else. Another thing here that uh, that I would suggest before res resorting to some of the experimental stuff would uh, would be stuff like pituitary function tests. So a lot of times the hormones, um, the pituitary can have dysfunction following concussion injury, and uh, this is becoming more and more uh, well known. And I think that um, doing a pituitary function test may help to pick up some dysfunctions potentially, and then simply treat it with you know hormone replacement type. Um, therapy. So um, there's there's a number of things missing from from this particular case before I would resort to that type of stuff. But for your question on neurofeedback and hyperbaric, you've heard my um, my opinion on that. Uh, next question: uh, We held a webinar on baseline testing. Uh, this is two weeks ago now, and um, it was it was awesome. We had a lot of people come out and um, and and ask a lot of questions as well. And so one of the questions that we had from that was, um, what do you say to doctors who do not believe that PCS or post concussion syndrome is a condition? even when you've sent them supporting current literature. Well, I mean, this is something that is always a battle for um, practitioners that don't have a lot of knowledge around concussion. Uh, concussion is a very specialized kind of area, and um, the general rule of thumb is that it takes about 10 years for research to make it into the general realm of general practice. So for the, let's say, family physician or other healthcare professional that may be seeing patients, they're likely to be quite out of date. Um, and so sending them supporting literature sometimes can help. And I'm glad to hear this person has, has tried to do that. But oftentimes, um, you know, there's a, they're, they're busy too. And so having the time to read that is, is not necessarily in their best interest. PCS as a term, um, we should probably address this, post-concussion syndrome as a term, um, is kind of on the way out. I think now it's being more referred to as just persistent symptoms rather than post-concussion syndrome. They're just calling it persistent concussion symptoms. And so uh, that might help you in just, just reframing the terminology rather than calling it post-concussion syndrome. Try approaching it with this particular individual as you know, this patient has ongoing or persistent symptoms due to a concussion injury sustained at X amount of time. Because then it's not 
you know, it's not a diagnosis of PCS. It's they had a concussion at one point and now they're just suffering from the persistence of symptoms. So it could be a terminology thing, but I think really the best thing is to try to provide them with as much uh, evidence and supporting literature as you can. But ultimately, you're not going to change someone's opinion if they don't want you to. If they're not open-minded enough, then, um, I mean, that's a battle that, that we all we all kind of face. And, um, uh, I mean, that's about as much as I can give you there. Uh, oh, study of the week. All right. I'm going to pull it up here. This is from Wild at all in this year 2018 it just came out and the title of the study is orthopedic injured versus uninjured comparison groups for neuroimaging research in mild traumatic brain injury so again the title sounds very confusing but let me explain it to you right now in concussion normal imaging like mri ct scans they can't show concussion Concussion is a functional injury, meaning that if you look at an MRI or a CT scan, you can't see a concussion on those images because the brain will look intact. There's no damage to the brain from a structural standpoint during concussion injuries. And so those types of structural imaging techniques don't work. So there's a big push on now to find functional imaging techniques because concussion is a functional injury. It changes how the brain functions. It changes potentially how blood flow is path, the pathways of blood flow in the brain, how cells utilize oxygen and metabolize oxygen and glucose. Uh, there's also uh, a technique now called diffusion tensor imaging, which I've talked about a few times, which looks at the flow of water molecules along individual axons. And the theory is that if an, you have an intact axon, the flow of water will be in uh, a uh, kind of a linear direction and it will be restrained perpendicular because you have the axon sheath there that's not allowing you know, stuff to go perpendicular to the actual axon itself. And it, in concussion, we see that those things tend to be affected where you get water that's diffusing perpendicular to cells when it normally shouldn't be, indicating that maybe there's some damage, you know, structural damage within there that's, that's causing that. So there's been all sorts of studies now using diffusion tensor image as a, um, a diagnostic kind of biomarker in research saying we confirmed this concussion based on diffusion tensor imaging. The problem is, and the problem with a lot of these imaging techniques, is that if you look at people with other impairments, for example, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, okay, anxiety disorders, uh, depression, um, and a number of other things, you actually see very similar changes to concussion, where you'll see changes in cerebral blood flow, patterning that looks very similar to concussion. Uh, in diffusion tensor, you'll see the exact same findings as you would see in somebody with concussion. So does this, does these, do these findings represent damage to certain cells, or are they a result of something else? Is it a change in brain function? Is it a change in how the brain is processing based on having depression or based on having anxiety or based on having other mental health conditions? So this particular study said, why are we using healthy control groups as our comparison, right? If you're looking at somebody with a concussion and then comparing it to somebody with no concussion and is otherwise healthy, Maybe that's, that's just the difference. And so this study here wanted to look at people with other injuries. So, not, so instead of just going concussion and healthy, they went concussion, healthy, 
and then orthopedic injuries, meaning ankle sprains, shoulder injuries, but injuries that didn't involve the head and neck. So other types of musculoskeletal injuries, orthopedic injuries. And so this kind of now um, shows us some stuff. So adolescents and young adults uh, went into the ER and were recruited for the study. They had 83 concussion patients and they had 59 orthopedic injuries. And then they had a healthy control group of 36 individuals. So quite a large sample when you're looking at concussion research. Uh, in the ER, both the concussion and the orthopedic injured group underwent regular MRI as well as a diffusion tensor imaging scan within 96 hours post-injury. So within about four days post-injury, they underwent this imaging. The concussion and orthopedic injury group then waited three months and came back for a follow-up image, MRI and diffusion tensor image. Then they took the healthy group and just put them, gave them one image. So they did uh, a diffusion tensor scan and then they compared them, okay? And the results, okay? There were group differences in between the concussion and the healthy group. So they were able to pick up differences between concussion and healthy, but when they compared concussion versus the orthopedic injury group, there was absolutely no difference. At the acute stage, absolutely no difference. At the chronic stage, three months later, so they were still able to pick up um, dysfunction compared to the healthy group at both the acute and chronic state, but between the two injured groups, there was absolutely no difference. So then this calls into question all of the functional imaging that gets done surrounding concussion. We have these new fancy imaging techniques, diffusion tensor. Does that mean that this represents brain dysfunction or does that mean this represents pain? Maybe the reason why people have these findings is because they're in pain, no matter where that pain is. Okay, and this brings us to some other types of imaging. There's been studies looking at the volume of the brain, finding that after concussion, brain volume is decreased. But they've also found the same thing, same brain volume decreases in people with orthopedic injuries. So it's the exact same type of thing. Uh, same thing with fMRI, same thing with all the different functional imaging techniques. So overall, um, this study just casts a lot of doubt into imaging and looking at the brain and trying to find a brain specific reason for persistent symptoms or even concussion in general. And uh, we find that when we compare it to groups that have any injuries or other psychological or mental health conditions, there's absolutely no difference from concussion. So I think to move forward in this, we need to be uh, comparing to other groups with other injuries. Um, to have a better understanding of what this, what the capabilities of these imaging techniques actually are before we get too far into it. Uh, was there any other questions that came up during that? That We did have a question pertaining to CTE and whether or not it can only be diagnosed through autopsy. Yes. CTE can only be diagnosed through autopsy. Uh, currently, there's some research now using PET scans. So I talked about one imaging modality that uses uh, brain uh, glucose. So it, it puts a radioactive tracer into the person's body and um, it binds to glucose. And so as your brain utilizes glucose, it can pick up you know, certain areas. So that's a normal PET scan. There's another marker that goes in and it binds to tau protein. 
So usually it's FDDNP or some other type of marker that goes in and binds the tau protein inside the brain. And so the theory now is potentially this imaging can pick up CTE in life, but again, still experimental. Uh, Bennett Amalu, who was the doctor that was played by Will Smith, put out a paper just this year, and they've now had the first case where they did a PET scan in life and found um, tau protein aggregations based on this marker, kind of showing, you know, showing hot on a scan. And then that person subsequently passed away and they did an autopsy and they correlated the pre-mortem injury or the pre-mortem scans with the post-mortem autopsy. So that's the first case of that actually happening. So I think we need a little bit more research to flush out whether or not we can actually diagnose that. But the thing is, CTE looks a lot like a lot of other pathological conditions. So it looks a lot like, uh, it can look like Alzheimer's, although the patterning is a little bit different, but can also look like a number of other neurodegenerative conditions. And so just because you see tau doesn't mean it's CTE. It could be, there's, I think there's over 20 different types of tauopathies that are there. So uh, we have to keep that in mind as well as not necessarily due to trauma. It could just be um, genetic or uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, So that's it for episode nine. Uh, If you have any other questions, send them in. Um, Yeah. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.